Amen. Tonight I want to talk about standing in the gap. You know, I can't tell you how many times I have prayed. You know, our whole family got born again in a very short period of time. We were Catholics. We were Roman Catholic. We went to church every Sunday. Uh, we, we, we literally, I don't ever remember not going one single time. I, I don't ever remember missing at all. And my parents were very, very strict, very disciplined people. And uh, they were not saved, but they understood the, the value of discipline, structure, and order, and thinking, uh, you know, correctly. And, and a, lot of, a lot of just uh, very dutiful going to church, saying prayers. We prayed every night. Lent, we'd pray every single night on our knees for probably an hour or so uh, for 40 nights straight. Uh, we would go to confession and uh, confess our sins and and then take communion and all these things. It was very structured. It was very rigid. It was very kind of like, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily legalism because I didn't think that my good works would uh, necessarily uh, save me. I thought, well, maybe, you know, God would like me if I was uh, did more good than bad and ha- had a lot of wrong thinking. Maybe that is a form of legalism, but, you know, it was, it was strange because as soon as we got saved, my mom got saved watching Billy Graham on television. My sister got saved out at the University of Iowa in, in a pre-med program, in a master's degree program. And then myself, I got saved when I was at University of Northern Iowa. We all got saved about the same time. And then we kind of convened and kind of started talking about it, started realizing, oh gosh, something's happening here. Now there are nine of us, seven kids, two parents, a big Catholic family. And I'll never forget, my mom and my sister, I says, you know, we need to start praying for the rest of the family. And we didn't know a lot about witnessing, but we knew this. Anytime you start trying to tell siblings or family the way it is, like Larry Potterfield always says, uh, they're probably not going to accept it very well. So we thought, well, we'll live it and we'll pray it. And we'll wait until they ask to say it. And so, you know, we just decided that we're going to live this thing out. We're going to pray. And in about six, somewhere between six and nine months, all nine were born again and spirit-filled, talking in tongues, and all of us have stayed in church and served in church, either in ministry or in leadership positions, our whole life. My parents used to drive a 150 miles round trip every Sunday. And my mom's 87, and she still drives a 150 miles round trip to church every Sunday at 87. And they don't miss. And they even go until the weather's so bad that we won't let them go. And they used to clean the church after service on Sunday. Um, cause all the, all the, the younger people were too busy. <laughs> and so, you know, they come from a generation that know how to work. And they, they, they come from a generation that doesn't make excuses. And, and I, I'll tell you what, because of that, I think God honors that. That when they pray... Their word always means what their word says, and they believe that God always means it when he says his word. And they just had big-time faith and just believed, and it just worked. And we saw everybody get saved. But I remember many times, I remember my one sister who was a 15, 20-year smoker. She was a stockbroker in Chicago. She worked in the Sears Tower. She had gone to the University of Iowa and worked on her MBA and was uh, going uh, to school, and then she was 
doing this stock brokerage thing, and, and she was living the fast lane, and uh, she was just, just come out of being really worldly. My other sister was very worldly, kind of, you know, pot-smoking, women's lib, the whole, the whole nine yards, liberals. And uh, I tell you what, my one sister, I started praying for her, and she started having all these throat problems. And the doctor says, you know, you're just on the verge of having throat cancer. And you've had to have your tonsils out, and you have continual infections, you have continual problems. And what's, you know, you, you need to quit smoking. And she, she tried, and she, she couldn't quit smoking. She had just gotten saved, and she was just really struggling. And I remember one night, the Holy Spirit woke me up. It was at midnight. And the Lord says, pray until I tell you to stop. And it was just, I mean, I didn't hear the voice in it, but it was like, pray and don't, you know, wimp out, don't bail out. Just keep praying until you break through. And my sister had been to the doctor so many times. She'd had tonsils out. Her tonsils were, were you know, she had infections. She had infections after that. She had all kinds of problems with her throat. She was, as the doctor was saying, she was getting throat cancer. I mean, she was on the verge of that. And the Lord just spoke to me one night. Now, if we would just listen to what the Lord tells us to do in prayer and intercession, we'd see amazing breakthroughs. I prayed that night from midnight, I looked at the clock, and I prayed till 8 in the morning. And boom, immediately, the Lord says, she's healed, and she'll, and she'll be free from smoking. A few days later, my sister said, you know, I talked to her on the phone. She says, I, uh, just something happened. And she said, I have never been able to quit. And she says, I've had this terrible throat pain, and I, and I was in, in all kinds of pain, and it just came to me that I need to quit, and suddenly I had the grace, and I quit smoking. Now, I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't tell her right away, like, yeah, I'm the cause of that. <clears throat> I prayed for you. <laughs> Aren't you glad? And I didn't say, but I thought, man, that happened right after I prayed. And I've had a lot of things like that happen that you know, that you prayed for that, and you put the time in, and you really did battle. And you, I mean, the, the, the fight of faith is just staying in faith. Our fight isn't against the devil. It's, a, it's really a fight to stay in faith. And to stay in faith means we got to stay in prayer. When people quit praying, it's not because they don't want to pray. It's because they don't have any faith because they don't have any word in them. If you're full of the word, you'll be full of faith and you won't help, be able to help but pray. You want to pray all the time. You want to pray in tongues all the time. Well, when people don't come to church, like it says, he who turns his ear away from the hearing of the word, their prayer is an abomination. That's because if they turn their ear away from the hearing of the word, then they don't have faith. And if you don't have faith, you don't want to pray. And if you don't want to pray, then you're just going to live the way that you choose to instead of the way God tells us to. But intercession and standing, my title tonight is Standing in the Gap. Let me tell you something. We are called to a life of prayer and laying down our life for others in prayer. I find that the more that I pray for others and, and see uh, that other people's needs get met, my needs automatically get met. Give and it shall be given. Be not deceived, whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. There's something about what you sow in prayer, you'll reap back in answers when you're praying for other people. Now, you can pray for yourself all the time. 
you know, I, and you, you know, we need to believe that we receive things and we need to pray for ourselves. And I understand that. There's a time to pray for yourself. But I find the more you pray for others, the more you don't have to pray for yourself. And we need to get out of this, you know, it's all about me, you know. What's that Korean Airlines commercial? It's all about you. And I think, gee, we've really gotten weird. So turn with me to Ezekiel 22 and 30. And praying for the loss of backslidden, you know, on the prayer board, we've got all these people and we're praying for them. And for those who don't pray, those who won't pray, and those who can't pray. Don't, won't, and can't. We've got a lot of different categories of people. For whatever reason, they're not praying. They're not believing. They don't have any faith. They don't have a chance. So somebody has to step in, like the two guys. You know, intercessory prayer, if you could put it to action, one of the greatest Bible stories is the man who couldn't get to Jesus, and the two men carried him up on the roof and lowered him down through the roof, and Jesus said that he got healed because of their faith. That's very intercessory. Standing in the gap comes from the word intercession, and it comes from two words. One's a Latin word, and it means to stand in between or to step and get in between. And so we need to get, you know, this guy needed some help getting between him, you know, the distance between him and getting into the house. And they got in between the guy that had the healing power and the guy who needed the healing power and bridged the gap and brought them together. That, that's a very intercessory thing. Ezekiel twenty two thirty. let's read. It says, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap. Of course, this is a very popular scripture. We talk about it. We almost get so familiar with it, it means nothing. But look what it says. I sought for a man among you that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me, for the land, before me, for the land. In other words, there's that... that one who stands between twos. There's one mediator between God and men, the man, singular, Christ Jesus. He says, and in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore I have poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord. You know, God wants us to experience him as his mercy. He he, he, he's wanting us to not have to meet. He, he wants us to know his grace. He doesn't want to have to know, us to know his justice. Because his justice isn't going to be real pretty when it comes. He wants us to know his grace. He wants us to come to us in his grace. He doesn't want to have to... He, he wants to meet with us in fellowship and grace and love and all these things. He doesn't want to meet with us on the basis of his justice. And if we'll pray... We won't have to meet his justice. How many would rather meet God's grace than his justice? I'd rather meet him as my advocate and intercessor than my judge. But prayer and intercession is a courtroom, is the courtroom of God, and we are called to be a part of that. Everything in prayer, when you study the Bible, has a courtroom setting to it. You know, it says, and turn with me to Romans 8 and 33 and 34. This is powerful, and it talks about Jesus and how he is uh, truly our intercessor. Uh, we all know he sits at the right hand of God forever making intercession for the saints, it says. But look what it says. This, this is just a powerful verse of Scripture. And it says here, uh, And who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? 
Is it Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again? Who is he that even at the right hand of God, who, is all, who also maketh intercession for us? Jesus makes intercession for us. He is our advocate. First John 2, it says, My little children, I write these things unto you that you sin not, but if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation of our sins. Not only of our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So he is our intercessor. He is our advocate. That means lawyer or attorney or the one who stands in on your behalf before the judge. These words have real meanings. An advocate literally means, you know, Lord, Jesus is our Jewish lawyer. I'm glad I have him defending me. But God still calls us to pray and intercede, even though Jesus is our intercessor, even though Jesus is our advocate, even though Jesus is the mediator between God and man. Uh, we still have a part to play in intercession. Some people say, well, we don't have to intercede. Jesus is interceding for us at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Well, what you've got to understand is, yes, that is true. And that is concerning our salvation and being born again. But then there is interceding because we're called to pray you one for another. How many of you know we're called to pray for one another? Confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed, it says in James. Yeah, we're called to pray for one another. And we're called to pray and make intercession. And, you know, it says, For we know not how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groaning which cannot be uttered. Even though the mind of the Spirit makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So we're called to pray for one another. We're called to intercede for one another. And But, you know, you think, well, but Jesus is already doing that. But we're supposed to take hold with Jesus together when we do that. And, you know, Jesus has a, a general intercession for us, but then I believe he calls us to pray and make intercession specifically uh, for one another. Because as it says in James, it's, you know, it says, if there's any sick among you, let them call for the elder church and let them pray over them. Well, that's the elders praying for other people. That's somebody praying and interceding for someone else. Amen? And it says, making all, all manner of prayer with prayer and supplication for the saints. In Ephesians, it talks about that in Ephesians 1 and 16 through 18. With all manner of prayer making supplication for all the saints. So, you know, pray you one for another, it says. It says that the elders and pray over people that are sick. It tells us to make intercession and, uh, for the saints. And Ephesians, it talks about all these things, for all the saints. And, you know, it says, Paul said, I cease not making mention of you in my prayers, in Ephesians 1.16, that God, that you might know the hope of your calling and that the eyes of your standing, understanding would be opened in the knowledge of Christ, that you might know uh, the great power uh, that raised Christ from the dead and how it dwells in you and has seated you in heavenly places far above principality, power, and might, and every name that's named in heaven and earth. And, and it, you know, you can go through and find so many prayers. The Ephesians 3 prayer, praying that we might be strengthened in the inner man and praying over in Colossians where he says, I pray that you be filled with the knowledge of his will with all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you be fruitful in every good work. You know, there's so, many, there's so many examples of Paul praying and people praying in the Bible, you can't even hardly begin to count them all. So we're called to pray for one another. We're called to intercede. And yet, over there in Ezekiel said he looked to and fro and he couldn't find anybody to stand in the gap. You know, we're called to pray for each other, but a lot of times we say, yeah, I'll pray for you. But how often do we really pray for one another? I'm so glad that I just didn't know any better, and we just really prayed. And my whole family got saved. My whole family got baptized in the Holy Spirit. My whole family got, got faithful with God and has served God. 
and grandkids are born again and, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, I'm just really glad that I just prayed for people. And I think that we need to just realize that some of the greatest things we can do is pray. Now, there's three things, you know, really four things about prayer that are likened unto a courtroom in the Bible. There's a judge. Turn with me to Psalm 7, 8 through 11. So in a courtroom, there's always a judge. In the scene in heaven, there's always the judge of all the earth. Psalm 7, 8 through 11 says this. It says, the Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to mine integrity that is in me. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous, God trieth the hearts and the reins. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. So you didn't know God had an anger problem. He says he's angry with the wicked every day. So where's that in the Bible? Oh. Psalm 711. You know, and what that means is, you know, he died on the cross and people still reject him. And he's angry that he's going to have to judge them. How many of you know God loves us so much he doesn't want to have to judge us? He's looking for a way to save you, not a way to condemn you. He's gone to great lengths to rescue, not to let sink. He's done everything in his power to the point of giving his whole life and giving up his life and giving up everything to save us. He, he is looking for a way to save, not for a reason to have to judge. You know, some people are always looking for a way that they can judge somebody or judge something. But God is looking for a way to save us and deliver us out of our situation. We just need to realize that when you go to intercede for people, you've got God on your side wanting to save the people from those situations. You've got the little woman in, in Luke, the 18th chapter. You've got the judge, and again, we see God portrayed like a judge. In Luke 18, we've got the little woman with the prayer of importunity, and she's just you know, going after this judge, and he's a wicked judge. And it talks about this, and it says in verse 1, it says, And he spake the parable unto them to this end, that men ought to always pray and not faint, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. Now, this is a bad judge. He didn't fear God. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man. I think that's so funny. I don't fear God man, but now this woman. It's a different story altogether. And, and, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just funny. I mean, when you look at that, it's kind of like... This is, and he's a judge, you know, and, and he says, Because uh, this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjudge judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Everybody say speedily. speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find any faith in the earth. And that's what he's saying is, here, I'm going to show a wicked judge, a wicked judge will eventually respond to someone who is dutiful in prayer and intercession and, and, and 
pleading their case. I mean, a wi- and, and this is the point I said, and I'm not even like, a, I'm not like a wicked judge. I'm the good judge. I'll do it quickly. But the problem is, is I can't because I can't find any faith in the earth. It says, when I come back, will there be any faith in the earth? Wow. It's not on God's side if it's not happening. He's saying, you know, uh, wicked judges even give in and give you what you want. And I'm not even like them. I'm a good judge, and I'm, I'm ready, waiting, and willing. Johnny on the spot can hardly wait to do it. I'll do it speedily. I want to give you what you want when you come and you plead your case towards me. That's what I want. But the problem is, people don't have faith to do it. So then I'm waiting for somebody. I'm wishing somebody to intercede so I don't have to judge them. I, I, it gives me great joy to let them off the hook and show mercy and grace. But because there's no intercessors, you know, we, it says we have not because we ask not. We have to ask. We have to go before God. And even though we don't know how to pray, that's why he, he gives us tongues. We don't have to understand what we're saying. And it's making intercession for the saints according to the will of God. It's the perfect prayer. God turns it into the perfect prayer. A baby's cry. He doesn't know what he wants. I mean, he knows what he wants, but he doesn't know how to say it. He doesn't know how to pray. He doesn't know how to make a request for that milk. He doesn't know how to make a request for that diaper being changed. He doesn't know how to make that request. Put me to bed. I'm tired. But the parent already knows what he wants and is ready and willing to do it and wants to do it. See, we, we, but we've got to, because it's a legal courtroom and he's a judge, we have to ask. Number two, the prosecution. John, turn with me to the book of John. So in every courtroom, there's a judge. And in every uh, courtroom, there's also what we call the prosecuting attorney or the prosecution. And in John 5 and 45, we see some interesting things being said there. And it's, uh, let me see if I'm, it says, Do not think that I will accuse you of to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? What does that mean? There's one that accuses you, and it's Moses. See, that's really a reference to the law. How many of you know the law was given to expose all of our sin, to accuse us of sin? that the law was given to make us realize how exceedingly sinful we really are without Christ. And if you look at this, you can go over there and, and read in you know, Romans 3 and 19. You don't need to turn now. We know that what the things soever the law saith, it saith, excuse me, it saith to them that who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. See, there's an accuser, and it's God's law, and it accuses us, and it says, you're guilty. But that has really a greater end to it. Let me show you another uh, accuser uh, in, in Revelation 12.10. Now, here's an accuser, and it says that Satan comes and accuses us. Did you know that Satan accuses us before God? Do you know that when he's accusing us, he's not making up lies? A lot of people think, well, he's, you know, he's, he's making that up. And, but, you know, Satan will come before God in the courtroom of God. And I believe that there's literally like a courtroom type of setting. Look what it says. 
We'll just begin there in verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. See, he is cast down, and we need to know that. And he is an accuser. He is like the prosecution. He's always bringing accusation. You know, when you sin or do something wrong, he accuses you before you, and he accuses you before God. And he wants God... He wants God to see, see your people sin. See, I saw one, I saw one of your, one of your uh, children, and he was, you know, watching a bad movie the other night. Or he was drinking, he was out drinking or cursing or, or doing something. And he, he wants to bring it before God. He wants to say, you know, but, you know, God, all, all God has to say is, you know what, but Jesus died for all those sins. And he confessed it. You know, one person came to Dr. Barkley and says, I saw one of your deacons the, night come out, the other night come out of the liquor store. What a big fake. He's, he comes to church and he, and he prays and he does all this stuff. And I saw him. And now we all know what the real, you know, brother so-and-so is like. He's the guy that comes. And Dr. Barkley says, no. He says, you're wrong. The real guy is the guy that you see at church that wants to love God, that comes every Sunday. He comes and he prays and he's weak and and the guy that came out of that bar the other night, he hates him. He's trying to quit being him. He doesn't want to be him. But once in a while, he falls back into that sin of the old man and becomes that guy that goes to the bar or goes to the liquor store. And see, but the accuser wants to make out that he's a bad guy. But see, the advocate and the intercessor wants to make out, no, there's another side. And that side is mercy. And that side is that God loves him and wants to save him, not condemn him. Can I get an amen? amen. See, and, and see the, but the prosecution, the prosecutor doesn't want to do that. And it's really made very apparent to us in John 8, 1 through 11. Let's turn there real quickly. John 8, 1 through 11. And we're going to find some more accusers. So the law accuses us. The devil accuses us. And religious people will want to accuse us. And we can see this very clearly. This, this really becomes clear in John 8. We all know the story. And Jesus went um, onto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him. And he sat and he taught. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when, he had, excuse me, when they had set her... In the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. See, now they're, see, they're accusing her to see what kind of a reaction they'll get so they can ultimately accuse him. And, and Satan is what? The accuser of the brethren. How many of you know in the courtroom of heaven there are forces that have come to accuse you? And the judge sits and he watches. And the judge that's in Jesus, who is who God incarnated, sits and he watches. They might accuse him, but Jesus stooped down with his finger and he wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and he said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. How many of you know that's correction? He corrected them. And they which heard it 
being convicted. See, now there's conviction. Wow. By their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. And Jesus lifted up himself, and he saw none but the woman. And he said, And her woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? See, you got correction, you got conviction, and you've got condemnation. And he said, and, and she said, No, man, Lord. And Jesus said, Unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So he brought correction. So religious people want to bring accusation. They want to be the accuser of the brethren. The devil wants to accuse you, and the law does accuse us. But when you're born again, the law is no longer over us. We're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Now, we know that we're doing wrong. So in the courtroom, there's all these things. Now, look at this. And then there's the defense, and that's Jesus. And God tells us to plead our case before him. Turn with me to Psalms 119, 53, and 54. We are told to plead our case in several places. You know, I remember when I went to ORU, probably the time that I pled my case more than any other time, is I was a senior, I was out of student loans, I had transferred, I'd lost ground, I wanted to graduate. I had to take a eight-hour-a-day German course for four weeks, and I had to do my 50-page senior paper in four weeks. And this was in summer school. How many? No, they were both in three and a half weeks. And uh, and I also had a year's worth of German. So I thought, you know, I'm going to petition, and I'm going to ask if I can get. And you've all heard this story. And I petitioned, and I wrote several pages, and I pleaded my case. And this was the board of directors. This was, this was like the, the big head high honchos of ORU. And when I presented it to the lady that was supposed to take it in and present it to him, she says, now what is this about? And I said, I'm petitioning to have a whole year of German waived as a requirement for my graduation requirements. Well, she just started laughing. I mean, and it was the type of laugh that you knew what she was saying is, you idiot. And, there, and she's like, well, what? You know, like, you aren't going to get, they aren't going to do that. And you've heard me tell this story many times. Well, I pleaded my case. She didn't read the whole thing. You know, there's something about just saying, Lord, I would like you to do this. And there's another thing when you get down on your knees and you begin to plead your case and begin to tell the Lord all the reasons why you believe that, you should ha- that things should be changed. I remember Hezekiah got down and he pleaded with the Lord and he wept. And God said he was going to have to die, and then God says, no, I'm going to give you, I think it was 15 or 17 more years. See, there's something about pleading your case. And so in Psalms 119.53, look what it says. This is very powerful. I like, I like this verse of Scripture. And it says this in 153 and 54. It says, consider mine affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget thy law. Plead my cause and deliver me, quicken me according to thy word. Plead my cause and deliver me. How many of you want the the Holy Spirit to come beside you and you plead your cause with God? The Bible says that he will deliver. Let me give you another. You know, this is in more than one place. It's a powerful uh, scripture. Isaiah 43, look what it says. Isaiah 43, 25 and 26. I like this. It says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. 
I'll tell you what. We can come and plead together. So in the courtroom, you've got God. He's the judge. You've got the prosecution. Satan is the accuser. And then you've got Jesus and the people praying, and they're the advocates. And they're the one who stands on behalf. And the person who's being prayed for is the defendant. And I believe that God wants us to come to him in prayer. And let me give you some examples of intercessors in the Bible. Turn with me to Genesis 18, 20 through 30. We all know this story. I'm not going to repeat the whole thing. I'm not going to read it all because it's a little bit lengthy. But we know the story. It says that two angels came and visited Abraham. And he brought him into the tent. And those two angels were there with him. And then they spoke with him about some things. And then they went down to Sodom and Gomorrah. But look what it says here in Genesis 18. It says in that uh, 20th verse, it starts out, it says, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come up to me, and if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence, and they went toward Sodom But Abraham stood yet before the Lord, and Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now, let me tell you something about that. I'm going to share something with you that is not real plain and clear. You know, in chapter 14, how many of you know that Sodom and Gomorrah got attacked with five kings? And, of course, Abraham went down there, 300 of his trained men. Lot was kidnapped. All of his stuff got taken. And Lot Lot was part of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible says that Lot was the only righteous person in Sodom and Gomorrah. Later on it tells us that in Peter. And Abraham went down there and saved him. Everybody say saved him. He came like intercessor and he came and he saved Lot from being kidnapped by five wicked kings and overtaken Sodom and Gomorrah and plundered and took the people and took all the goods. So... We know that Lot and Abraham were related. We know that Abraham was like his spiritual father. We know because of their great wealth, they separated, went their separate ways. And we know that Lot went and pitched his tent towards Sodom, where it says the men there were exceedingly wicked. We know that Lot grew up in that place, became a judge in that place. Abraham had saved him one time. And now God's saying, I'm thinking I'm going to have to go down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't think Abraham was all concerned about Sodom and Gomorrah, but I think what he was concerned about was his nephew Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, now, Lord, if there be 50 people, he kind of backdoors him, and he says, if there's 50 people there, certainly you wouldn't destroy those 50 righteous people with all those wicked people down in Sodom. Uh, You'd rather show you're you're far more about mercy, and, and the mercy would trump, and you'd save the 50 people in Spain, even, you know, the wicked and, and the godly and the ungodly both are blessed by the Lord, and you could quote a bunch of scriptures on that. And, and, he, and, he, and he, he says, no, no, I, for 50, I wouldn't. And he says, well, how about 40? Says, you know, I know Sodom and Gomorrah. There may not be 50 people down there that are righteous. And the Lord says, yeah, if there be but 40. And, then he, said, and, he, and he kept thinking. He says, you know, I'm trying to think, do I know anybody there that's righteous? And he's thinking, man, the only person I can think of is Lot. You know, <laughs> it's like... And then he says, well, 30. Uh, don't get mad at me, 20. Now don't, don't throw me out. Don't get really furious. And, you know, how about even 10? And the Lord says, if I can find 10 righteous people, I won't destroy it. Well, you know what? There was not 10 righteous people. You know, but God saw him pleading his case for another person. God knows, how many of you know God knows everything? God knows our heart. God knows the whole story. 
God knew the real reason why Lot was probably praying is because he knew his nephew, Lot, was down there, had a wife and two daughters and two son-in-laws. He knew those son-in-laws were reprobates. He knew those daughters were not you know, quite right, and the wife was this kind of a messed-up lady, and she looked back and turned to a pillar of salt. We find out later. And they, the, other, the sons were destroyed, and the daughters came out, and really the wife is a picture of an apostate looking back and turning to salt. Uh, the two sons are complete reprobates. They just laughed at him when he said, judgment's coming, we need to get out. The two daughters were like wheat among the tare. They turned you know, into perversity and, and raised two you know, uh, wicked nations, came out of their loins after they had molested their fathers. So they're kind of like wheat and tare. Uh, but, but the bottom line was, God's so good, he got Lot out of there. He, he had to destroy, and this is what I like, he had to destroy, but he knew his heart, and he accomplished what he was praying for, even though his justice had to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But he makes an exception, and he gets Lot out of there. Notice how he didn't pray to get Lot out of there? That was God's idea. But what he saw, you know, and I'll tell you what, if you will pray with the right heart, you might not pray the right thing that's going to fix it, but God will take it, your prayer request, and he, he may not be able to spare Sodom and Gomorrah because how many you know people's wills come into play when you pray? You know, for, they weren't going to repent. Uh, his justice is, I got to destroy him because I can't find, not only can I not find 10, there's only really one, and so I still got to destroy because I didn't say it for one I wouldn't. And so God is bound to what was agreed upon and what was prayed out and the case was pleaded. But he knew the heart of Abraham, and so he saved Lot anyway. How many of you think that's pretty cool that God would do that? Let me give you another example. Moses, we know, comes along and, you know, the children of Israel are, are, are just something else to deal with you know he says go out and check out the land sends out 12 spies 10 come back and says we can't take the land two come back and says yes we can we can take the land they take the land they go into the promised land they start murmuring and they start saying we need to go back to egypt and we don't like this and we remember the food there was better and we like the food and and uh, they, they were just very troubling and very difficult and god really you know how many know god gets angry sometimes Numbers 14, 11, and the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? How long will it be ere they believe me? For all these signs which I have showed among them, I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them and will make them uh, make a, the, a greater nation and a mightier than they. And Moses said unto the Lord, then the Egyptians shall hear it. And he begins to plead their case. He begins to intercede. And it's really amazing how he begins to talk to God. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, almost like he's, I don't know, it's a strange way that you don't, you don't see very many people, but he begins to reason. How many of you know in, in Isaiah it says, come let us reason together? God's angry at their murmuring at the children of Israel. He wants to destroy them, and Moses pleads his case. First of all, he says the heathen are going to see this. And first of all, God, it's a bad testimony. It's a bad witness. It, it makes you look bad. It makes you look like you couldn't bring them out, like you're incapable, and, and you aren't big enough, even though they're a bunch of rebellious little brats, you know. Uh, aren't you big enough to deal with them? Aren't you big enough? It, it's almost like he's saying, God, don't you realize there's a bunch of wicked people watching? Sometimes I think God was just seeing what he would say. 
And then these wicked people are going to say, God, you're not able to do this. I mean, you look at it. It says, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. For they have heard that the Lord art among this people, that thou art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them. And man, you've got an awesome testimony here, God, that they go before them by day and in a pillar of cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. And now if thou shalt kill all these people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of this, of this will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land, which he sware unto them. Therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as it has been spoken, saying, the Lord is long-suffering, great in mercy. And he begins to quote Exodus 34, verse 6. He begins to quote where the Lord told him that he was long-suffering and had great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children under the third generation. And pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy, as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. You know, here's God. He starts out saying, I'm going to destroy him. And by the, t- done, he's, by the d- time he's done in the courtroom of God before the judge of God, as the advocate making intercession, as there is an accusation, the law of God against these people because they have sinned and they have been bad, and all these things, and even God is angry in this particular case at them, and he, want, and he turns God around because he intercedes and he pleads their case. That's why it says, come let us plead our case together. How many believe God and you can, I mean, we're a, in numbers we're a minority, but in power we're a majority. You get, get hooked up with what God has said. And he reminded of God what he said, and he says, I'll pardon them according to your word. Last one, Matthew 15, 22. Maybe intercession is an, exciting, is an exciting subject, but let me tell you something. We need to learn that our intercession, we can change things. So, well, they've always been that way. They're still that way, and they're probably always going to be that way. You don't know my relatives. You don't know my kid. You don't know my situation. You don't know our finances. You don't. It's always been that way. It's that way now. It's probably always going to. You know what? I'll tell you something. You can change anything with prayer. And even when, you know, I'm going I'm to make this sound really funny. Even when God's not in the mood. <laughs> that sounds terrible. I love this story. We're going to finish on this. And this is the only person where Jesus ever said, mega is your faith. We all know the story of Matthew, but I'm just stirring up your minds by way of remembrance. Matthew 15, 22 to 28. We're going to just say it real quick. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him. Here's an intercessor. Let me tell you something. This is an intercessor. If there was ever an intercessor, it's this lady interceding for her child. Saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. Immediately, circle son of David. She starts out by speaking to his messianic fulfillment as the son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil, but he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. Now, first of all, she appeals to his messianic fulfillment as the son of David, and they want to throw her out. 
How many be discouraged by that time? And then she goes to the next level. But he answered, and he said, I'm not sent unto the lost sheep of the, I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm only called to the Jews. What's this Gentile lady doing here? It's Jesus talking. Then came she and worshiped him, saying, Lord, now she's appealing to him that he is God. I mean, you don't just bow down and worship anybody. She bows down and worships him. Not only is she expressed that she understands his messianic fulfillment of the prophecies, but now she's saying, I understand you to be God because I'm going to bow down and worship you. Now, you'd think that would have changed him right there. But he answered and he said, it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. In other words, this, is, this covenant isn't for you. It's, it's not for the Gentiles. You're a dog. Wow. And so she comes back. And she said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Now she appeals to him being master or Lord. First of all, she appeals. She says, you're the messianic. You're the Messiah. Secondly, you're God. And you know, it isn't good enough to say that you're God. But when you say you're my master, then you're making Jesus Lord. She took three levels of progression there. And let me tell you something. And when she said that, and she said, I'm lowly, and you're the master. Wow, he's thinking, that's better than most my people understand. Oh, they want me to be Savior, but they don't want me to be Lord. You know, John Bevere points out that the word Savior is in the Bible 26 times. The, the term Lord, or the word Lord, is 7,600 times. You suppose God wants to emphasize Lordship more than Savior? 26 times, Savior, 7,600 times, Lord. I think this woman got it when she said, Master's table. I'm just a lowly dog is not being saved. Now, we become children of God, and we're not lowly dogs. But he said to her, he said this, Then Jesus answered and said unto her, Woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto you even as thou wilt. She interceded. She pled her case. She wouldn't give up. She wouldn't accept no for an answer. She would not be denied. And she kept drawing near Messiah, near God Almighty. Oh, I got to go one step further. You're my master. I'm going to be your servant, your Lord over my life. Let me tell you something. In intercession, there's three things that we can learn. And that is that if we will be diligent and plead our case and, and refer to the word and make him Lord, over our life, he will begin to hear us. Let's stand up. I know we're late, and uh, we'll be dismissed. Anybody get anything out of this tonight?